Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast. Today on the pod, local mayors push back on BC government's new budget as they see little to nothing for fast-growing communities south of the Fraser. And Victoria announces a 20% flipping tax. Is it war on mom-and-pop investors? And how comfortable are you paying a local councillor to travel to Halifax so we can learn more about the Juno Awards? Plus, Keith Baldry joins us for the week that was in politics. And our Friday wrap panel tells us what they'd do if the Bank of Art Gallery made them curator for the day. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on some of the after effects of yesterday's budget. Of course, we heard the upcoming fiscal year. The forecast will be a $5.9 billion deficit, growing to $7.9 billion uh, for the next fiscal year. We've uh, had announcements around the flipping tax, the BC Electricity Affordability Credit, the Employer Health Tax Threshold Changes. We had the BC Family Benefit. We had a partial exemption for property transfer tax, $2 billion for health care. So lots of money floating around, so much so that even our debt will uh, is forecast to climb by nearly $20 billion to $123 billion. Uh, a lot of that is on capital spending, some one-time infrastructure projects such as $16 billion for Site C, $2.2 billion for St. Paul's. Uh, in fact, uh, the capital budget will increase uh, from a record $8 billion this year to $12 billion in 2023-2024. And get this, $13 billion the following two years. In fact, our provincial debt will climb to $134 billion by 2026. So lots going on, lots being built, a lot announced by uh, the BC government. But what impact does this have on our cities, especially fast-growing communities south of the Fraser? Joining me to talk a little bit about the impacts uh, and the announce- after the announcement from yesterday's budget is Eric Woodward. He is the mayor of the township of Langley. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Jazz, thanks again. Uh, so your thoughts, first and, first and foremost, on the budget, very much anticipated uh, in regards to the hoopla around it. And, of course, it is an election year. Your thoughts on uh, what you took from what you were expecting and what you, t- what you took from it after? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think it's uh, it would be great to see some of the details of where this money is specifically going to be allocated for. You know, I think south of the Fraser, we were hopeful to you know, between Surrey and the Township of Langley to see more specifics around our local hospital, the, you know, the desperate need for schools here south of the Fraser, you know, perhaps another growing communities fund, which we haven't heard about, you know, uh, TransLink investments that are desperately needed south of the Fraser with all this growth. So again, Jazz, it's the same theme, you know, while the province, you know, demands more and more housing, we, you know, we really haven't seen the follow through and investment in some of these communities like south of the Fraser. Did you get any indication that there be some spe- announcement specific to uh, those fast-growing communities? I mean, you, look, you raised some good issues here. Uh, you know, the local hospital, I know uh, Surrey's been getting a lot of attention for that, the second hospital that they want. But, you know, you have a hospital in your community. But I look think yeah. of schools yeah. for Langley. Uh, I, I also think of just, uh, you know, as you go further down <laughs> towards Abbotsford and Jellowack, they really want to see that Highway 1 expansion and widening. Uh, as much as possible. I mean, it seems like there wasn't much there just based on some of those topics you just brought up, including TransLink. Yeah, I think it's, you know, we just got, I guess we have to wait for, you know, the remainder of the election campaign to see what the specifics are going to look like. We were hoping to, to see some of that, you know, yesterday or the day before, so we could start to plan accordingly. You know, out here at, in Township of Langley, you know, we're council starting to endorse, you know, pulling back on our growth rate simply because we have so many kids in portables. You know, the, the province is building one elementary school every five years. 
you know, that's just not going to cut it here south of the Fraser, especially t- Township of Langley. And so, you know, we have to start talking about slowing our growth rate if we're not going to see those investments. So it was unfortunate not to get some of those specifics yesterday. So would you, at, 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 the, at the council level, actually say we're going to slow walk, uh, uh, you know, potential housing expansion uh, and, and, you know, developers coming in to build their townhouses, their condos, their single-family homes? You're saying you would actually... All, go out of your way to slow things down just because it's it's taking so long just for those infrastructure needs that are not, not being met, whether it be educational, whether it be whatever it may be, it's the government's not moving fast enough on the provincial side. Yeah, and I think we're already doing that, Jess. So uh, council's already endorsed a new phasing policy, and we've added uh, one, one area to that. Council's looking at adding uh, more areas of that that add up to hundreds of acres that we have to pull back on because we're so many schools behind. You know, we're adding about a 1,000 new students per year to the district here in the township of Langley, we have thousands of units that are already approved. And so once those are built, you know, how many students are still going to be in portables? And so is it responsible to carry on to develop as much as we can anywhere a developer wants to, uh, to have a livable community? And we need the province to, you know, invest in the education system as our primary concern if they're going to simultaneously demand more density. Uh, do you think, and this isn't specific to Langley, but I'm, I'm thinking Surrey, Langley Township and City, Abbotsford, Chilliwack, I mean, do you think you all need to work together, perhaps a joint uh, lobbying effort? Because <laughs> the next provincial election, the elections are won and lost based on the suburbs of Vancouver and increasingly south of the Fraser. I mean, it almost seems like you, you should have a, a block of some sort to doing collective lobbying to the govern, government and what, what, what's needed from all the way from Surrey and quite frankly, all the way to Chilliwack. Yeah, I don't think there's any shortage of awareness of the needs. I think, uh, you know, both Mayor Locke, myself, and, you know, Siemens and Popov in, in all these areas here in the Fraser Valley and south of the Fraser, you know, regularly communicate what the challenges are. You know, I don't think it's any secret to the Ministry of Education that we have one of the highest per capita portables in the province, you know, next to Surrey. And it's a cautionary tale for us, you know, do we want to become, you know, as bad as it is in Surrey right now, you know, with portable washrooms in some of their school sites. So, you know, we want to be more responsible for our community and say, okay, well, if we're if we're going to be already three or four schools behind, you know, is it responsible to continue? And, you know, the lobbying efforts are there. It's just we're not seeing the investment, again, while simultaneously calling this out for not building enough housing. Uh, the there is, to my understanding, a contingency fund, as there is always with a budget, and there's potentially four billion dollars sitting there. Do you think maybe a lot of these things that you and I are talking about perhaps will be addressed in in, in the months ahead before we get to October nineteenth? Yeah, I think they're definitely. You know, that's obviously a possibility as an expectation. You know, to to roll these things out as announcements. You know, what that does, though, is it delays the school that's needed to be started today. It delays it for another year, so six months or so. We need schools now. And to, to see them delayed for an election campaign is certainly, uh, hopefully that's not the motivation. But, you know, to see, you know, to lay it out the way you have is a big contingency fund to make these announcements. That delays these projects even further. We've been waiting years for some school sites to be built. And you know, how do we justify to our to our residents that uh, we're going to continue to prove housing at this rate you know, while additional school projects are delayed and delayed for whatever reason they're delayed for. Do you, um, what should we be doing differently? And it's not just uh, schools and portables, uh, but I'm thinking even just, you know, Highway 1 expansion. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about $10 a day, day daycare expansion. Is there a, a need for the way we uh, fund 
these programs, or at the very least, a sort of a broader 30,000-foot level view going, okay, we know everybody, the vast majority of folks are moving south of the Fraser. Do you almost need a south of the Fraser plan or something like that for the provincial government? I'm just thinking, you know, it's, it yeah. all seems ad hoc. You know, whether it's Liberals or United or NDP, we all just lurch and, and towards, okay, a school there and, and, and maybe we'll widen the highway there. And there doesn't seem to be a, a broad plan to address the collective growth of the region. Yeah, I would agree. And I think we see that with TransLink and Transit, especially, you know, with Mayor West uh, beating that drum so well to highlight that, you know, here we are with a growing population and transit needs. We And they have a coherent plan. They have an investment plan. They have a 2040, 2050 plan. You know, what what is the investment and where is it going to come from? And it still doesn't occur on the timeline that it needs to. And, you know, so if you had that plan for education or hospitals, you know, would it just be sitting on the shelf like transport 2040, 2050 is? So I think, you know, you know, the frustration for me and the solution would be to, to really see and hear about some structural reform to get projects built faster. So, you know, the little old township of Langley can build a $150 million rec facility for ice sheets in a year and a half. Why does it take five years to build a new elementary school? Why does it take a year and a half to do a business case and a you know project definition report? This is why schools take years and years and years. And, you know, that's something I'd like to hear about is how do we speed up construction and delivery of these projects when they're so obviously desperately needed? I was a bit surprised you said that you're going to have to slow down growth uh, and expansion in your community just because of uh, you seeing nothing. I mean, I get where you're coming from. I'm just a bit taken aback that you actually were saying that publicly. Well, I think it's it's not, it's public. It's been on the council agenda. We've brought in a new Willoughby development phase in council policy, you know, pulling back on some of our greenfield development because, how do we start developing, you know, hundreds of other acres when that's going to fill up the other schools that are already full? And, you know, if we don't start to see these investments, then yeah, I think that's going to be the reality. We're going to manage our growth rate more deliberately and, and really focus on where is that growth going to occur and what is the plan for schools? And if we don't see the schools, then we simply will we'll slow down the growth rate. We have no choice, Jazz. I mean, how do we justify responsibly adding so much more additional housing when we already have so many portables in our school district. Eric, as always, thank you for your time. Yeah, great. Thank you, Jess. We're joined now by show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. How are you today? Oh, I'm fantastic. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. You sun's know, out. Sun's <laughs> out. And uh, we were talking about this uh, off air, but uh, I saw a stat yesterday that we're about 20 days away from the sun setting at 7 o'clock. Oh, Isn't that great? Thank God. We are after between February 28th and I think October 28th, the sun will not set before 6 p.m. That That's is awesome. Holding on. Yeah, I don't, I I just love walking uh, getting out of here after the show and realizing you still have sunlight. Oh, you know, and it's, it's not pitch black. So, yeah, it's so nice. <laughs> it feels so good. But so, somebody posted something yesterday that we're 20 days away from the sun setting at 7, so it's like, great. Yes. That is we're wonderful. We're in a good mood. We're in a good mood, but you know, a place that they're even better mood uh, from what I've been hearing is <laughs> UBC. Oh, yeah. Technically not right on campus, but they it's in the University Village, which is just across the street from the bus loop on the campus. It's real, real close. Um, Burb Cannabis has just opened their eighth and 
for now, final location in mm -hmm. British Columbia in University Village across from UBC there. Technically not right on campus, but essentially it's on campus. And this is big because I think this is the closest that a legal retail cannabis store has been to a university campus. And uh, but it oh, it was a hard won victory that <laughs> it like for them. Uh. It was pretty nutty. It's uh you know, given the neighborhood, there was a lot of pushback. Um, lots Leafy neighborhood, single-family le <laughs> home neighborhood. <laughs> Correct, Mundo. So uh, I talked... Creme de la creme. <laughs> yeah, jeez. And uh, folks with lots of time. There was a petition actually against it in 2021, and it got 1,950 signatures oh. against their people kind of rallying against putting in this cannabis store. So it's been, um, I mean, John Kay, co-founder and CEO of Burb Cannabis, he says it best. It's an absolute marathon, and he reiterates, it's not technically right on campus but it's it's pretty close <laughs> technically uh right across the street from the bus loop we're basically right on right on campus here yeah this is obviously i just say demographically speaking like it's a pretty great idea i but i feel like given the neighborhood this probably did not come about super easily so i'd like to kind of know what was the process like of opening this location yeah it was a marathon we started about nearly three years ago and um, we definitely had opposition. There's a lot of foreign ownership um, here that uh, weren't too keen on the idea. And we really just wanted to, you know, drive the point home that there is already cannabis circulating on campus here. You know, legacy or gray market, whatever you want to call it. But what happens when a legal store goes in is it, it actually prevents access to minors. And it's really hard for minors to come into our store or any legal store and make a purchase. So, you know, it's all about safety. It's all about eliminating the the black market dealer. And just, you know, it's convenience. We have a liquor store right around the corner from our location. I think the, you know, the people that wrote in complaining definitely were, were loud in, in their complaints, but uh, we feel the majority of people are very supportive. The students are excited. It's a legal business at this point, And that's kind of what the, uh, what the endowment lens based their decision on. So yeah, it's, it's been a process for us, but finally at the home stretch, we actually just passed our building inspection here. So we're all set to open on Friday. I worked in a cannabis store back home and like always like these kind of down to the wire at the buzzer. It's like, okay, we can open, we can do this. Good. Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. We're kind of, this is our last store here in BC for uh, about a year until they lift the cap or do something with that. Is it, there's this cap. So you can only have provincially eight. Is that the number? Yeah, so private retailers are capped. Any one brand can only have eight locations. Obviously, that doesn't apply to the government stores. There's like 30 of them, but oh. the rules are not the same in the private sector versus the government. So, yeah, we're we're this is our eighth, and after that, we have to wait for them to lift the cap. Is there any, like, scuttlebutt that they will be doing anything about the cap, or do you, there's it going to be the same? Yeah, they're looking at it. It's a big issue. There's a few groups that are at eight, and... Um, you know, initially they set this cap to prevent larger East Coast groups from right. coming in, and it served a purpose. But now, uh, five, six years in, everyone's very cautious, and you know, it's it's not like a. I think in the beginning there was more of a gold rush mentality, and uh, there's less of those fears that you know someone's going to come in and just open up like 30 stores economically. Just not doesn't make, doesn't make sense. BC was so interesting in terms of the the uptake um, because there was such a such a robust gray market. I guess BC municipalities have been kind of pokey in terms of allowing shops to to be open. Like Surrey still doesn't have one. Uh, yes, you're correct. Surrey is still trying to decide what that 
is going to look like for them. I think they said 12 stores they're going to allow. But I don't think there's going to be any movement until the next election in October, November, so likely January or the new year. They may uh, raise the cap. We're looking at Surrey. Surrey's a great market. We A lot of our customers in the Tri-Cities live in Surrey. So It's so, I don't know, it's weird the way government has handled these things. Yeah, no, weird is an understatement for sure. <laughs> they like to protect, like Burnaby, for example, only allows government stores. There's no private. It's, you know, the government is kind of choking the private sector because they're the, the distributor, the wholesaler, the, then they compete on the retail side as well. So you know, we're doing our best to play ball. Uh, they do that liquor too, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's so interesting having a mixed public-private model or a mixed government-private model for anything. And and, and for cannabis, it's it's about government wanting to control and have control yes. because of – and people's sensitivities and, and concerns with cannabis. But liquor is the same way many, many years ago. At its core, LDB, Liquor Distribution Branch of BC, makes a lot of money for government mm-hmm. and they're not going to give that up. And they, you know, One day you can have philosophical debates on whether or not government should be at the retail side of liquor, but uh, on the distribution side, they're not giving that up. It's too much money. But uh, in the case of, of UBC, the fact that they still say it's not right at UBC, they're just, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. Most of them are adults there anyway. Yeah, right? like so. most of them, if you're 19 years old, whether or not you should or should not, you can technically legally go in and purchase cannabis. And like having a cannabis store does have these effects where it's just the convenience thing. It's just, yeah. well, if the store is right there, why would I text somebody and make them come, you know? So it's um, it's interesting. It's been a, it's been an exciting day up well, there. It, it also, as you were saying in that conversation with John there, government still has to walk it slowly with cannabis. As much as people think it's legalized, let's go, what are we talking about? You know, I mean, look at the U.S. states. They still have dry counties in the U.S. They do. And we still have, if you want to compare that to cannabis, dry communities in, in, in the lower mainland too. Some communities, yeah. I think Richmond still Richmond as have. well, Richmond and yeah. Surrey. Mm-hmm. And Surrey Surrey's getting there. They're going to have some soon. But it takes time, right? It takes and, a lot of time. And, and it's easier to roll back regulations than impose them later on. So exactly. for sure it makes and sense. And government rather be known as slow rather than missing getting stuff. Ahead. Getting yeah. ahead, right? And then you get caught and get in trouble. So there you go. Jerry, yeah. thank you. Thank you. week that was begins right now. All right. Joining us now is uh, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hi there, Jazz. Uh, busy week. Let's start with, of course, the budget and the throne speech. Uh, usually you don't see uh, both of those events occurring in the same week. You guys are pretty busy over there. Yeah, it was a crazy week, and you're right. Um, I don't recall ever a budget and throne speech following one following the other by just two days. So, yeah, throne speech on Tuesday, budget on Thursday. You and I talked about the budget yesterday. Um, the lines have been set, I think, for the election. The NDP obviously thinks that the public is in a mood for expansive uh, spending from government, expansion of programs. You and I predicted that existing programs would expand and be available to people normally uh, beyond the income bracket uh, to receive these uh, programs. And sure enough, um, the family uh, benefit bonus was given a boost uh, to include people uh, whose incomes are up to 165 uh, $161,000 uh, a year. So again, the the, the old cutoff for, used to be around seven or 80000 Now it's mm-hmm. you know, doubled, which is a reflection of what uh, Premier Eby said 
a couple of weeks ago that uh, people earning six-figure incomes up to 200000 are not in a good place because of the huge cost of housing. And then you've got the opposition taking the exact opposite tack, saying this is an outrageously foolish and irresponsible budget that will lead to inflation. So you've got United, BC United and Conservatives on sort of the hawkish balance the books approach versus David Eby and the NDP, open the books and spend money. When does this end? And I don't mean this in a negative way. I'm just amazed that, you know, you and I have been talking about a forecast budget uh, for this fiscal year, $5.9 billion, growing to $7.9 billion in the next fiscal year. You have the overall debt growing from $93 billion to $134 billion by 2026. Now, one could argue where they're building St. Paul's Hospital, the Site C Dam, all those types of things. But when, do you, when does this turn where people go, wait a minute here, finances do matter in your mind? Or are we still a few years away from that? I think we're still a ways from that. I think the pandemic... Um brought everyone into a new frame of mind when it came to government spending and the reliance on government for help. I mean, we basically had a national income program for a couple of years, which had always been talked about, but always seen as utterly um, unattainable. Well, that's what CERB was. Then you throw in the various provincial programs. And the fact that provincial governments and federal governments of all stripes and all countries were running massive deficits, and there was nothing anybody could do about it because the economy literally cratered. I think we're still in that mindset with the public where they still want the government to do stuff and spend money and not necessarily balance the books. And, and you know, the finance minister Katrina Conroy was pretty clear in her remarks to reporters and in the speech, um, basically laying it on the line, saying, no, this is not the time to cut back things. This is the time to expand things. And so that's a fundamental difference of opinion and position and philosophy between this government and the opposition parties that want to challenge it. Hmm. Let's talk uh, just a little bit uh, about the BC Land Act. Uh, you know, Nathan Collins has been on this show and and he said, look, we are not giving a small portion of our province uh, veto rights in regards to resource development, of course, referring to First Nations communities. But there has been enough uh, uproar and opposition to this uh, drummed up by uh, the opposition, uh, BC United and um, uh, BC Conservatives, uh, that uh, even First Nations communities were pushing back on the opposition. But the government still had to pull back and say, we're going to, you know, greater consultation. They'll bring back this legislation. Grand Chief Stuart Philp was on this show uh, just recently. He's president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and he f- specifically uh, went, went uh, and challenged Kevin Falcon and John Rustad uh, on their comments and what he believes they're responsible for, which is, of course, this legislation falling apart. I did ask him, would you be willing to work with Mr. Falcon and Mr. Rustad in the future? Here's his comments. Can uh, the First Nations community, and that's a broad community, and I understand not everybody's going to agree on everything, and it's like any other community, but can the First Nations community, do they trust and do they feel they can work with, in your mind, Kevin Falcon and John Rustad moving forward? Uh, Quite frankly, the short answer is no, absolutely not. Um, I think they've um, demonstrated that uh, neither of those leaders are fit to form government, given the regressive views they have, uh, which will really undermine uh, the economy and destroy opportunities for the uh, various groups in this province to come together and work together. Keith, your thoughts on what uh, Grand uh, Chief Stuart Phillips said and just this whole BC Land Act uh, controversy? 
Well, Grand Chief uh, Philip is not the only First Nations leader calling out the opposition on this and basically accusing them of, of catering to racist fears. I mean, we've got Cheryl Casimir with the First Nations Summit political executive says a small cohort of so-called leaders, in her words, used the amendments to, quote, tap into racist fears and beliefs for their own benefits and on the backs of First Nations people. So this is a serious breakdown a relationship, if there ever was one, between Kevin Falcon, BC United, and First Nations, and John Reston, BC Conservatives, and First Nations. And we talked about this before. They were sort of dancing around this issue, trying to tie the Land Act amendments to the fact that it would give a veto, that word deliberately used, mm-hmm. and tying it basically to UNDRIP. John Cummins, is, uh, John uh, Rustad wants to uh, repeal UNDRIP. And this was all sort of predicted in a way that some of the fears would, would certainly become realized, that UNDRIP would be seen, would be used as a vehicle for those who oppose First Nations um, rights or expansion uh, to play up the fears that it somehow it's tied to a veto, something the government vehemently denies, but there is a constituency out there mm-hmm. that um, backs that view, and particularly in the interior and the North. And I think both the BC United and the Conservatives have made a tactical gambit here that the seats they are competitive in are in those regions. They're not in Burnaby, they're not in Vancouver, necessarily even Surrey. They're in those other outlying regions where this issue is looked upon quite differently than in the urban areas. And it's, you can call it cynical, um, and Chief Philip uses other words to describe this, but I think it's a very deliberate move by the two opposition parties that, that are attacking fairly far right away from um, uh, things like UNDRIP. Kevin Falcon hasn't quite come out and opposed UNDRIP. They voted for it uh, under the, as BC Liberals, but John Rustad is dragging BC United onto his turf not the other way around, and because that's where the United thinks they can win seats. It's interesting, even on uh, Budget Day, uh, we saw a question period, and, and I recall uh, BC United leader Kevin Falcon uh, uh, questioning the government on why they haven't brought back unvaccinated health care workers. Uh, Mr. Rustad's party, and I think it was Bruce Banman who got up and asked the questions, talking about, uh, I guess, uh, some literature that uh, reminds public, wor- public sector workers, uh, bureaucrats, that when working in First Nations communities, some First Nations leaders don't view themselves as British Columbians first, but believe believe in their land, that they are the original people of this land. And it's, it was more a, 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 a guidance and reminding people to be sensitive when dealing with First Nations communities. But somehow that his questioning was, you know, why is the NDP saying that we shouldn't be proud to be British Columbians? It's a bit of a silly question if you ask me. But I was just listening to both of them and I go, what has this got to do with everyday needs around health care, uh, it's just affordability, housing, the real issues, and they're, they're almost fighting over who's more conservative. Oh, exactly. I think, first of all, Falcon raising the issue of unvaccinated health workers, which I don't think anyone even talks about anymore, is an indication, I think, they're worried about the seats they hold in the Peace River, which has the lowest, they had the most vaccination hesitancy, where there was protest against uh, MLA Mike Bernier's house from, by anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a very conservative area of the province, and I think that's an indication that of all days he picks Budget Day when the press gallery is not in the chamber to witness this. Uh, to raise that issue. And then the issue about language was actually raised by Ellis Ross, the issue of the language um, guidance for civil servants. Again, um, taking an issue and taking the opposite side of First Nations as, again, I think, a deliberate, deliberate political strategy by both parties. So on the one hand, playing to the those who think 
not getting vaccinated in healthcare is nothing to worry about, which is a very small number of people, but significant in certain areas of the province. Again, this is just basic regional um, politics. And it's basically another reflection. The real race right now in politics come the next election and things could change. You know, we all know things can change quickly in, in politics. But the competition right now is between United and conservatives over which party is most likely to form opposition rather than actually winning the election. Uh, let's go to Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev. Hello. Um, Ellis Ross, BC United MLA, he doesn't strike me as a knuckle-dragging racist. Now, didn't he also have issues with these land act ch- uh, changes? And secondly, now, there are there are so many overlapping claims in this province of BC by First Nations so what is the mechanism when you have multiple nations claiming jurisdiction over land? Mm-hmm. Uh, all, Ellis Ross is very well-respected MLA in, uh, from Skeena. Mm-hmm. Um, commands a lot of respect in the House, justifiably so. He's jumping to federal politics. Um, he hasn't been the lead critic on the Land Act changes. But you know, the issue of overlapping claims just is, further illustrates how complicated a situation this is. It's not an easy thing to, to bring off because the caller is quite right. I mean, you do have First Nations who have fundamental disagreements over the same land, and those disagreements go back, you know, centuries, and we're talking a long time. So this is not an easy fix. Uh, this is going to be a hard sell to begin with and a hard thing to implement when it comes to really define what, it, what does co-managing really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but the onus is on the government, I think, now to come back with some changes of First Nations leader support, but also have the support of communities that are affected by some of this. But I, I think it was inevitable that there was going to be people stirring the pot on this with some inaccurate portrayals and, and deliberately um, explosive language in terms to exploit this. And I, exactly, this is exactly what's happened. All right, let's go to uh, Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Hi, good afternoon, Jazz and Keith. Um, yeah, so this BC Land Act situation, Mike Smith had, uh, I, I think his title, I think he was the regional chief or whatever. Jazz, he asked him, I believe, three times. He pressed him on it. Will there be a veto if this goes through? He talked around it. He would not answer it, this person, okay? This, I think he was the regional chief. Would not answer the question. But it's very interesting to me. John Rustad called out David Eby. said, look, if you want to go to the polls on this issue, drop the writ today. We'll, we'll go on this issue. And boy, oh boy, did David back up David Eby and the NDP. They're backing up so fast on this issue. They're tripping over each other. So Rob, Rob, I, I appreciate your call, Rob. I mean, I, I understand from both these callers, it is a contentious issue, but the government has said, and it's not a veto. I'm, I'm, I think part of the problem is the government hasn't been able to articulate, and perhaps some First Nations leaders haven't been able to articulate what this actually is, and that's been the core issue from from day one, because law firms have brought it up as well, that deal with First Nations communities and natural resource companies. This predates um, the Land Act changes. This goes right back to the the implementation of UNDRIP, where was there a veto? And this has never really been adequately put to bed. I'm not sure it ever will be, particularly in sort of the regional areas of the province. This is not a vote. This is not a ballot box question in Burnaby or West Van or Vancouver or the capital. 
but it could be a potential uh, significant ballot box question for many people in the Kootenays, the interior, and the north. And the, I know the NDP, for the first time, think they can win ridings in some of these areas that they haven't won before. And I think this, this pullback, this hitting the pause button, is a recognition that those victories, potential wins, might not be possible if this thing was still on the table. Yeah, but it doesn't, as you said rightfully, do you want to form government or not? And it's not a pressing issue in Surrey with uh, 10 seats or Vancouver or Burnaby or Richmond uh, or Fort Langley or Abbotsford or Chilliwack. So, where all uh, the writings are. Where the writings are or, or in, in the Victoria region. And that's what uh, you know makes you a government or you're forever going to be a permanent opposition party. So interesting uh, as how, how these things uh, uh, will be moving ahead. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. Keith, we've run out of time. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend, everyone. Well, we spent a lot of time yesterday uh, talking about uh, the BC budget and, of course, the deficit and and our significant growth growth in our debt. And you can, you know, debate which way the government's going on some of those issues and lots of opinions. Some people have said the government should be pulling back. Others have said uh, we are still dealing with the um, uh, repercussions of COVID and government still should be spending uh, on behalf of the citizenry, especially around health care. Now, one of the things also introduced in the budget was this home flipping tax, which will officially begin on January 1st of 2025. Uh, the tax rate is 20% uh, tax uh, is sold if sold within the first year of purchase. Uh, there will be some changes uh, as the, 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 you know, the date progresses if it's less than two, uh, two years. Uh, and there will, of course, be some exemptions in around uh, divorces and separations and disability illness or relocation for work. So all of that will be um, uh, spelled out uh, in the legislation. But my core issue here is, is it a good thing? Uh, what are we trying to solve here? Here is Mr. Katrina Conroy uh, detailing the home flipping tax uh, at yesterday's announcement. Budget 2024 will bring in the new BC home flipping tax. To those who just want to make a quick buck by flipping homes, things are about to get more difficult. If a home is sold within two years of purchase, the profit will be taxed, and the revenue will go right back into building middle-class homes for people. That was Finance Minister Katrina Conroy speaking yesterday uh, in the legislature. Joining me now uh, to talk about this 20% flipping tax is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and real estate consultant. Michael, good to see you again. Nice to be back. So is this a good thing? It's a good thing politically because it appeals to so many people. It appeals to all those people who are out there who believe that uh, investors, excuse me, and others who buying property and then they flip it are increasing the price of housing. What many people forget, though, is the federal government brought in an anti-flipping tax only a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And it's it's. I mean, I don't think any of us really know how much impact it's had. The other thing is, you know, the, 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 the minister referred to people making a quick buck. Well, actually, there are a lot of people who buy homes, they fix them up a bit, and then they sell them. It's a form of employment. Mm-hmm. And again, do you want to discourage that? Will they be allowed to do that and so forth? But no, I, I mean, the reality is 
I don't think there's as many people buying properties today with the expectation they can sell them in a year or two and realize a significant capital gain. You're right. I mean, regards to investing and then and flipping, and it is part of our culture. You and I are talking during the commercial break. I mean, this the network that I work for owns Home and Garden Television. You can turn it on, and there's a significant amount of programming on on on. on fixing up a home and flipping. So what problem are we trying to solve here? Like who would it target here? This is, let's just say, an average Joe who, let's say, lives in a home, uh, but their business is to just buy a property, clean it up a little bit, and then resell it, flip it, essentially. So that person is who we're going after? I don't, well, I don't think so. I think, I mean, if, if you listen to the minister, she was talking about people making a quick buck, and that's not necessary. She was just thinking there are people who buy a property and then sell it and make some money, and that that somehow is adversely impacting the housing market. I mean, I did look at some statistics. It was reported that across Canada, 7% of the home sales did occur within two years. But as the as the tax points out, there's a lot of reasons why people do move, including the fact that they bought a house and they don't like living there. They don't like living in the neighborhood. There's also people who, who buy paper. In other words, they buy a pre-sale mm-hmm. and then decide they don't want to proceed with that or they can't proceed with that. That's also covered by this tax. So I think it's appealing. It's like the tax that prevents people from owning two homes, which someone once referred to as a jealousy tax. <laughs> but in this case, I don't think it is doing anything that significant. There are other things in the budget that may help uh, first-time buyers, may help in the sale of some rental buildings. But when you look at the really big things that are going on, it's not that significant. I will raise one thing, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be on a panel with the Minister of Housing, Ravi Kalan, on Tuesday night, and I'm going to ask him... How come the provincial government, having put in place this new transit-oriented area policy Mm -hmm. that basically rezones in effect or sets rezoning in motion for a lot of properties around transit stations and bus loops that are currently single-family houses – which are going to increase significantly in value, and yet the province hasn't introduced any value capture tax or benefiting tax. I went and looked at a property next to the Dunbar Bus Exchange at 41st and Dunbar, yeah. where I live, and the house is on, is for sale. Its assessed value is 2.58. It's on the market for 5.8. Now, it may not sell for 5.8, but it's going to sell for a lot more than 2.58. Personally, I think the provincial government should try to get a little bit of that cream, if you like. That will probably be far more profitable. In fact, the government said in the first year they're only likely to get $11 million from this Flipping, uh, flipping tax. tax. Yeah. I, 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 I'm struggling with what it does then. Uh, because he say it's eleven million the first year. I think it's up to forty three million after that, uh, in regards to the, the tax dollars they'll be able to to, to pull in. Um, you know, if it's already difficult to buy a purchase a purchase a property here and clean it up, and you're hoping to make a hundred two hundred thousand dollars, there aren't a lot of folks who are doing that anymore. Like, I mean, maybe five years ago. So yes. the problem probably isn't as right. as desperate as we think it is now. 
uh, the former West Bank councillor Craig Cameron, who I often uh, enjoy reading, pointed out five years ago he thought that this should or should be brought in. And in fact, I noticed that the uh, Federation of BC Municipalities proposed this four or five years ago. So there has been a long-standing interest. But at that time, there was no doubt that people were making money just simply by buying and selling and watching the price go up. But the market's changed. Yeah, there was a federal liberal MP who won, and I know uh, he had to justify some of his practices in regards to some of the homes he had sold. So let, let's put the flipping tax j- away for a second. But I just want to talk about this flipping paper for a moment. Yes. Has that been reduced now uh, because of uh, legislation and just the conversation we've had? Because that was prevalent where you bought a pre-sale condo and it was just the paper you bought and... You promised to purchase the property once it's complete. Right. And there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that, and people weren't paying any tax, any capital gain tax on that wow. because there was no way of knowing who they were. The one thing that the, did happen is the government brought in a registry. So every developer is obligated to now report who has bought a pre-sale contract. Yeah. And so it's quite easy for the government now to monitor when that is sold. Okay. And uh, and if somebody does make money, they're going to uh, pay a capital gain tax. Although once again, there was a period of time, Jazz, when people were making a lot of money because prices were going up. I not I'm not I don't think we're so certain right now that prices are going to keep going up. No, no you're absolutely right. We are speaking to Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner and real estate consultant and during the commercial break we were talking about his time at CMHC in the 1970s. By the way, the early 1970s, I think it was 72. Uh, that's when we peaked in building homes in regards to a one year period. Am I right there, Michael? Yeah, yeah that's 72. So uh, we were just talking about having to repeat some of that now in regards to just dealing with the huge challenges of, of housing and the need for housing uh, in in our um, in our country but we're also talking about the flipping tax which the uh, BC government just introduced in their new budget it will come into effect January 1st of 2025 and I was quite interested when they announced it uh, you know what problem are we solving here how much of a problem is house flipping that we need to introduce a tax give us a call would love to hear from you if you are somebody who does you know put in the sweat equity uh, you know jeopardize your dollars your hard-earned money to buy a property fix it up and sell it would love to hear from you uh 604-280-9898 let's go to chris in vancouver hi chris hi jazz hi michael thank you for taking my call what's on your mind here um, I don't. I am a house flipper. I've been doing it for 27 years. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why I am so demonized. I buy houses that are one step from the grave because they're so far gone that nobody else will touch them. Mm-hmm. Um, I put millions of dollars at risk. I put a lot of sweat equity in. I hire subtrades who are desperate for work because high interest rates have slowed down new home construction and renovations. And in the end, um, I create a good product, save it from the landfill, and it sells for what the neighboring properties are already selling for. So what harm am I doing to society? Uh, I'm just going to, as a layperson, I'm gonna, I guess I would argue, and, and I say this as a layperson, one would argue if you buy that property, 
and you tear it down, you put up a brand new property. You're not you could be not flipping technically, but whatever you're doing, even fixing it up, the value goes up significantly, does it not, Michael? That's right. To the point where some would argue it's not actually affordable anymore. It'll be a four million dollar house in the market, which is around two point six. Yes, and maybe that's the problem they're solving. I, I, no, because the, it's the opposite in a way. If this gentleman, if Chris decides now, instead of fixing up houses and paying 20% tax on top of the other taxes mm-hmm. he may be subject to, he's going to say, I'll just knock it down and build a new house and just go through the normal income tax that I would pay as a part of the employment. Yeah. So once again, I mean, I mean, Chris sounds like a reasonable human being. He's putting in the sweat equity, you know, jeopardizing everything. And I'm not saying he's being demonized, but I'm just trying to understand why is this such a widespread problem that we need to solve this yeah. through a 20% flipping tax. And I don't even know if the Minister of Finance was going after Chris or just the, the imaginary people out there who buy a house for 1.4 and then eight months later sell it for 1.7 and somehow appear to have made 300,000. And in a rising market, they may well make 300,000. But right now, how many of your listeners will phone in and guarantee what the price will be a year from now? Will it be higher or will it be lower? I'm supposed to know. I don't know. That's a tough guess, that's for sure. Let's go to Chris. Thank you for your call. Let's go to uh, Jared in Vancouver. Hi, Jared. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. So I, I, I think it's good to stimulate the economy. We need these people out there doing work on houses. I mean, the house I live in, I did the same thing. I fixed it up. I added value. I didn't flip it. But I'm assuming these flippers are paying income tax. It's, it's not like, so as long as they're paying tax, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's good for the economy. Yeah. Uh, you were mentioning uh, earlier, uh, Michael, there were builders who would buy a place and live in it and, and, yeah. and they would get around paying the, 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 the taxes on that. That's right. I mean, I think people listening to us right now, Jazz, know of a builder and his wife who've moved 11 times in the last 14 years because every time they finish a house, they move in and somehow pretend it's their principal residence. And it was interesting. I read an article recently by a builder who said the problem with this new multiplex zoning where you build three or four homes on a lot is that it'll make it much more difficult for a builder to do that compared to before. But yes, and I think most of us want to see that builder pay the fair share of tax. But having said that, most of the people listening to us right now, when the fellow comes in to do some renovations and says, if you pay me cash, you won't have to pay the GST, most of us have no qualms about paying cash so that that builder renovator doesn't pay the gst so Mm. we do we're all pretty hypocritical sometimes about these matters that is true uh i do want you to come back i want to talk about the 1970s with you the era where we actually built a lot of housing because you were cmhc we'll do that another day Uh, but as always thank you so much have yourself a wonderful weekend you too Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's Friday.
This week, we asked, should taxpayer dollars be used to send officials to the Junos in Halifax? And if the Vancouver Art Gallery asked you to be a curator for a day, what subject would you choose? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halai is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, an author and a broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Howdy doody. Howdy doody. Uh, we got a bit of breaking news, or at least the news that uh, occurred about three hours ago. Now, we all know that uh, Vancouver City Councilor uh, Mike Klassen uh, had applied to, city, uh, to the City Council uh, to ask for approval for $3,650 so they could pay for him to cover his trip to Halifax next month with Mayor Ken Sim to, to, um, to, uh, to visit the... Uh, the city uh, uh, was hosting uh, the Juno Awards. Now, uh, Mr. Klassen said he wanted to get a sense of how Halifax organized the trip and it would better uh, help him to activate and energize our city as well. Well, in the last three hours or so, we have been told that Mr. Klassen, uh, after I guess many calls from citizens uh, and the story being covered, said he was going to withdraw his request <laughs> for money uh, to go to Halifax to, to watch the Junos and educate himself about the Junos. Now, one city Vancouver Councillor Christine Boyle uh, joined us right before the, the show went to air to give uh, us her thoughts on whether or not it was the right thing to do. Take a listen. I think it's good he withdrew it. Uh, it was a very um, poorly thought out request in the first place and clearly um, a bad read of the room during a time when Vancouver residents are really feeling the pressure of the increased cost of living and, and affordability crisis. Um, it was not a good use of public funds, uh, and I'm glad to see that he has withdrawn it. Uh, and I would be interested to know if the mayor still plans on spending some of the public funds from the mayor's office to, to attend with a political staffer. But for now, uh, certainly glad to see that Councillor Klassen heard the the public outcry and withdrew the request. Now, we don't know if the mayor is still going to go. One assumes he is. He's got his own mayor's swagger fund, which he'll probably be using. Uh, <laughs> but let me go to you first, Leah. Uh, some people would say, look, we have to educate ourselves about other cities are, are handling some of these mm-hmm. events, which allows us to be uh, a lot better when we host events. It speaks to institutional knowledge and history. Uh, it's okay to do such things. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Kent Ken and his research and communications coordinator who's going with him, can't they take notes, right? Like, why did we need Mike to also, you know, go and take notes? Like, Ken will be on top of that, I'm sure. I don't think that uh, Councillor Klassen should have gone anyway. So I'm kind of glad he pulled that. It kind of sounded like he just wanted a, you know, a free trip to the Junos. That's what it sort of sounded like to me. And then I was thinking, okay, he asked for thirty six fifty, and Mike... A Mike, sorry, Ken asked for thirty-five fifty. So, what was a hundred dollar difference there that Mike was wanting? An extra dinner? I don't get it. Yeah, and so, it was the other part is that we have hosted the Junos. Yeah, uh, twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We already know, uh, Sarah. One of the other issues is that look, other jurisdictions. Let's put Junos aside for a second. Let's just say Brad West, who's head of the, on the board of the TransLink, uh, the TransLink uh, board um, in regards to transportation for the region. What if he wanted to go to London to see how they run their transit system? Do you think that would be something that's actually acceptable? Uh, or do you think, you know what, there's enough knowledge out there on the Internet, you can do a lot of things on Zoom that you really don't need to be sending, spending some of these public dollars? 
You know, it's if it was for public transportation, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could get behind it. As long as it was something that was really well organized in advance, you know, there was going to be like one week and they, they could literally show an itinerary of meetings, going to various locations, mm-hmm. seeing how things were implemented, et cetera, et cetera, so on. But going to the Junos, like, come on. Yeah. Like, seriously, come on. <laughs> I mean, I get it. You know, if I could, if I could scammer a ticket to the, the Junos, I, I'm sure I probably would go. It is a long flight. I'm, I'm, I have done the Vancouver to Halifax log, and that is, that is an all-day travel day. I think the extra $100 was so he could get one of those extra cheese trays from, you know, WestJet or Air Canada. <laughs> yeah. That's how much they cost now, or like, you know, to bring an actual suitcase. Don't get me started with the airlines. Uh-huh. But yeah. Otherwise, it doesn't like unless do we get the or do we have the Junos next year? Uh, yes, I think it's coming yeah. up soon next year or two. Yeah, but, but we've done it, and I think it was uh, as Leah said, uh, twenty eighteen. But we also hosted I remember in two thousand nine. Doing it in like the early nineteen nineties because yeah. I was working for our sister station and I was emceeing stuff for the Junos down at the Commodore. So, I got a free ticket. Yeah. I remember that. That's right. Yeah, that's so right. That was weird. I mean, it 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 seems pretty simple. It's just it's just hosting an event. I mean, like what are what do we need to find out? What rock stars want to have in their hotel yeah. rooms? Ah, yeah. so think how could we make issue. it so much better? You know, I know what I mean? Yeah. Like how how are they going to learn something like that that's going to make yeah. it so much better here in Vancouver? If we didn't have the history of already hosting Expo, Winter Olympics, the Great Cup, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> Stanley Cup, uh, playoffs, finals, rioting, you know, we do it all well, really, if you think about it. So. I, and I'm, I you know, I feel bad, I feel bad for the guy because I don't, I don't think he was thinking like, you know, I'm going to get a free trip. I'm, I'm being facetious. No. Of course, I don't think it's. Sure, it, I he would. probably put in the request, going, "Well, this would be interesting because I'm wondering," you know, and then and then just did not view the optics because anything like this <laughs> no. at all is going to be you jackass. What were you thinking? And, <laughs> exactly. it, and, and it's so hard to put the toothpaste back back in the tube, right? You can't. Yeah. You can't undo it. You can't unring that bill. Well, it's like that new Westminster mayor who went to Dubai for the climate change conference. It's like, well, you're not going to fix it, you know, and good on New West for doing what they can in the city. Uh, but, you know, yeah. going to Dubai uh, is not going to solve yeah. climate change and it's not going to be solved no, through no. New Westminster. I mean, so. just, just the, uh, like, I mean, the carbon, the carbon, you know, capture, all like, well, excuse the footprint, me, the, yeah. the, the, fl- the actual yeah. footprint for going to Dubai of all places, which is oil town central. I mean, exactly. come on. We're on to topic number two one of London's biggest and most well-known museums is hiring for a new job opening as a Taylor Swift superfan advisor. The Victoria and Albert Museum, uh, which has more than 2.2 million objects in its collection and has an estimated 4 million people walking through its door each year is looking for a superfan advisor to give them expert advice on all things uh, Taylor Swift. Now, there are other openings for superfans as well. They want a superfan advisor on Crocs. Yes, Crocs. A superfan advisor on drag, a superfan advisor on emojis, and a superfan advisor for something they call tufting. And I better explain what that is. It's a type of textile manufacturing in which a thread is inserted on a primary base. So get your mind out of the gutter. So anyway, that's tufting. I'm sure people wanted to know. But I got us thinking, what if uh, our Friday rap panel was made curator for a day at the Vancouver Art Gallery or perhaps at the Victoria and Albert Museum? What would you like to focus on? What would you like to sell? Let's go to Leah first. You're curator for today at the Vancouver Art Gallery, or you can do it in London, if you wish, at the Victoria and Albert Museum. What would you focus on? I love all things Titanic. 
So oh. for me, it would be a Titanic exhibit, all the artifacts. I, I've been to the one in Vegas a few times, and I love it. And that's where you get the name of the person that you're pretending to be, and you find out if they survive at the end. I just love the whole feel of that. Everything Titanic is just fascinating to me. So that would either be the number one pick or anything Egyptian, too. I love Egypt. So any type of exhibit, which I've been to in Victoria, they had some great ones. Mm-hmm. I love anything to do with either one of them. I'd be like, yep, I'm there. So it, you, there's a Titanic museum in Vegas? No, it's not a museum. It's actually in the Luxor. So it's, oh. it's, it's like, it's inside of it. It's in their sort of um, where their show room is. So it's actually all set up where you walk in and you're on the um, steerage level. So you okay. hear the noises, you see what the bedrooms look like, everything. And then you walk to second class and then you go to first class. It's such a cool exhibit. If you have a chance, you got to check it out. And they give you a name of somebody that was on the ship. Oh, okay. So you find out all about them. And then at the end, after you do the whole tour and you get to listen and you see all the artifacts and everything, after you find out if you lived or died. And they even actually have this cool little, I know it's kind of sad, most of the guys died, right? But they have this, um, they have the part where you can stand outside and there's like a, a fake ice sculpture and it's super cold. So you get to see kind of the iceberg kind of thing. It was it was really, really cool exhibit. I would definitely go see that again. Oh, wow. Like, if you haven't done it, you got to do it. Uh, Sarah, how about you? Well, you know, Titanic. I have not yet seen the movie, so do not tell me how it ends. Serious? You haven't seen Titanic? (laughs) Don't tell me how it ends. I hear the boat sinks, but do not tell me how it ends. It was really good. I have no interest in Leonardo DiCaprio. It was like your typical van, a BC ferry. It just never left the dock. There weren't yeah, enough employees. <laughs> I have struggled with this. Uh, Steve and our producer emailed this, and I said, I, I, I can't think of a thing. Like, come on, Sarah. <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I love history, too. Um, so maybe I would do something because I would I would be wanting to sort of maybe elevate the conversation and, and get people to understand that if you don't understand history, you are doomed to repeat it. So I would want to mm. focus on the late 1920s into the 1930s and the onset of World War II oh. and all the behaviors in the world that seem to be cropping up right now that were cropping up 100 years ago that became what were, that led to World War II. So that's what I would be focusing on. History is doomed to repeat itself if we don't understand it. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking about that question, and I said, well, where would I want to be your curator for a day? I, and I've decided it's the British Museum. And on mm-hmm. day one, I would hold a press conference and say, ladies and gentlemen, we stole it. And we're all giving it back. <laughs> that would be the end of it. Wouldn't that be? Yeah, oh, put your hands it's up. Like, you see, way, and, and would anybody like the crown jewels back? Yeah. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Bueller? That vase yeah. from the Ming uh-huh. Dynasty, China, you can have it back. That mummy yeah. from yeah. Egypt, Egypt, it's yours. That diamond, the Kohnir diamond or whatever it is. India, you can have that back India, and everything else. Yep. <laughs> I do. I, I don't. I, years ago, like this was like in the in the seventies, or it was the the King Tut exhibit went yeah. through, and, and I was in at Crofton House School for Girls. We had a field trip to Seattle uh-huh. to see King Tut, and remember Steve Martin did the King Tut song. It was all yes. this stuff about King Tut, and we got down to see King Tut, and it was not that big. Like it was not, you know, I the I, I had this idea that it was going to be this huge. You know the whatever it's called, the like the headpiece and all that. It actually was. It was all very small, and I was kind of like, wah wah. Yeah. So they actually have more artifacts. It's actually in Egypt, so they've built a big museum, and they have like millions of pieces there. You just didn't get to see it all. That's all. Yeah, no, I, that was the thing. So is, much more. There was so much hype when they toured it in the in the seventies, and then when you saw it, it was kind of. It was it, it it was built up so big that you it could never possibly live up to the hype. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, ladies, we've run out of time. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too, you too guys. 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.